1: We are under attack.
2: Behind the bright lights of the global stage, there lies a dark underworld most people know nothing about.
1: People need to care what's happening inside of Putin's Russia because it's affecting all of us. This is Kremlin
2: File. Hi, everybody. I'm Mo. And I'm Olga. Ukraine is sort of like the last frontier. Last week, although we were speaking with Heather and Jakob, they introduced uh, all of the different ways in the hybrid war, which was playing out in Ukraine. We have two guests coming on today. Daria Kalanyuk is the co-founder and executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center, Mm -hmm. right, in Ukraine. Which has been so helpful. And she Mm -hmm. focuses all on international legal mechanisms for anti-corruption actions. So how do we fight this kind of stuff? And then the second guest that we have, Paul Nyland. Paul has been living in Ukraine for I don't know how long. A few decades, yeah. And he's a journalist and he's also a political commentator. He participated in the Orange Revolution and the Revolution for Dignity. He's also the founder of Lifeline Ukraine, which was set up for veterans, I believe, at first, but his help is a suicide line that had never been set up in Ukraine before, and he did it. Mm -hmm. Let's welcome Paul and Daria. Hi, welcome. Hi, guys. Welcome.
3: Thank you. My absolute pleasure.
2: It's absolutely incredible that everything that we're seeing today playing out across the world, also in the United States, cyber attacks, disinformation campaigns. Really, it was all tested out in Ukraine first. Ukraine was really a laboratory. So what was going on in Ukraine from
3: 2004 onwards? To begin at that point in 2004 and and specifically look at it as, yes, the beginning of Russia's hybrid war, that's the period, in fact, when Paul Manafort first uh, arrived here.
4: The investigation into alleged links between Donald Trump's election campaign and Russia has taken a dramatic turn, with the news that his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, have been indicted by a federal grand jury. Are there any ties between
0: Mr. Trump, you or your campaign, and Putin and his regime? No, there are not. Manafort represented dictators and lobbied to arm a warlord in Angola. Paul Manafort was a consultant for Viktor Yanukovych. Manafort worked with a pro-Russian
3: Ukrainian president who was later overthrown.
1: The Kremlin chose Yanukovych as the person to run in the 2004 elections. Their first move against his candidate who was pro-Western Yushchenko was to have him poisoned and then after that to rig the election. The country's election commission ignored reports of fraud
5: declaring Kremlin-backed Viktor Yanukovych the winner.
3: You know, the the response was was immediate and it was, uh, you know, just, swift condemnation, you can't do this. So this
2: is the Orange Revolution, 2004.
3: Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election, pitting their candidate, the West-leaning challenger Viktor Yushchenko, against the pro-Moscow <laughs> Moscow prime minister, Viktor Yanukovych. They claim Yanukovych's victory was rigged. What had happened was the Orange Revolution had been successful. It ushered in our requirement for media freedoms here. And it also brought Paul Manafort to begin his his operation on, on the remake of, of Yanukovych.
5: There is one event which happened in 2004. I remember it vividly, and it was kind of the test ground for occupation of certain territories. It's also Eastern Ukraine, mm-hmm. where some governors, including the governor of Kharkiv, Met together and announced publicly that they are creating a separate country inside the country.
2: Yeah. So yep.
5: that they disagree with um, uh, with Orange Revolution, with what is happening in Kiev. That Eastern Ukraine is different, and that they are calling Vladimir Putin to help
3: Russia. If you're listening, basically, it, it's treason.
5: That attempt to separate Ukraine failed, uh, but it was actually the testing of what's then happened in
3: 10 years. Yeah, it was, the, it was the first attempt to float the idea of separatism or, or any kind of division, of formal division of Ukraine.
1: And get everything.
3: And it was then, uh, you know, the the Kremlin's mission, intention to remake the image of, of Viktor Yanukovych and that's why Paul Manafort, this American political strategist and scientist was was brought in and, you know, he had to teach Yanukovych to smile, teach Yanukovych to pretend to be a Democrat, to pretend to believe in things like the rule of law and took on the voters. So in
2: 2010, Yanukovych runs and he wins the election. Thanks to Manafort. It was one of his campaign promises that he was going to sign an agreement with the EU, move towards Europe, and he reneged on it. So students picked up and they began protesting.
4: Maidan is divided. Police control one side of the square, protesters the other. This has been going on for months now. But away from the burning barricades, in the dark corners of the protest camp, some are preparing for a fight.
2: You were both activists at the time, right? When all of this was going on. Okay, so it was absolutely incredible to see 400,000 to 800,000 people who were in the Maidan braving braving the winter because we're not talking about doing this in the summer okay it's cold and it was like sort of a fierce defense a fierce determination how did they keep it going for over 90
3: days it was sustained constantly through the missteps of both Yanukovych and, and Putin as well. They made serious errors. So on the night of the 30th of November, they sent the, the riot police in to go and beat up the, the remaining you know, few hundred people that were on Maidan. And if they hadn't done that, then there was a chance that it might have petered out. There, w- there was a chance that it might have just withered and and just you know slowly kind of come to come to an end. But when you wake up in the morning and you see pictures of riot police beaten people violently, and you know there's no provocation or anything like that. What happened was that the Sunday there was a call for people to gather in Shevchenko Park, and a million people turned up. Sunday the first of December, and then and then they called the next Sunday the March of the, the the March of a Million to see if if the feat could be repeated, and it was, uh, wow. you know. And if if you look at the aerial photographs of Maidan from either of those days, and it's an enormous territory, right? Maidan is absolutely massive, and and it was full just to, to the gunnels, the streets in each direction towards European Square, further along Kreshatik. You know, throughout the revolution on the Sundays there was regularly several several hundred thousand people. On on, on Maidan on any given Sunday. Daria, what were you thinking?
5: Well, first thought, Maidan sounds a scary place, from what Paul told, but actually Maidan was the safest place.
3: True, bro. yeah.
5: And for everyone to stay at home and simply waiting that next time some secret police or Berkut could come to you, to your family members, and uh, you won't be able to protect yourself. So that was the feeling we had at home. And on my down, we had a feeling, wow, I'm not alone. We are all together, and we all all is a powerful force against any Yanukovych, any Putin, any dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are here to fight for dignity and for For justice.
1: So you have this unity, you have all these Ukrainians who are coming out to protest and, you know, uh, which resulted in Yanukovych fleeing. What steps did Russia take specifically to try to infiltrate and stop the protest?
5: Oligars, voting Metov and Medvedchuk and Lovachkin, so this pro-Russian people, they were behind uh, gathering, uh, Uh, groups of, um, of Titushki. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm I'm trying to explain who are Titushki. These are young men uh, in sportswear who were brought to Kiev actually from outside of Kiev. And their key goal was actually to intimidate um, and follow and attack. Uh, Maidan protesters. Yep. During the nights we were patrolling streets. And the reason we needed to patrol the streets because Titushkas they were kidnapping people during the nights. Uh, they were attacking uh, Maidan. Uh, and uh, Maidan people had, had to self-organize themselves. Uh, we have organized into the Uh, patrolling uh, car groups, so four four people would sit into one car and a group of a few cars would be driving across the streets of Kiev trying to identify these titushkas but then titushkas were supported by Berkut police, by the special police forces which were armed, which had weapons including grenades. At a certain moment, they started to throw grenades into the um, organized
3: patrol cars. On the 16th of December, Yanukovych went to Moscow and signed an agreement with Putin. We were a month into the revolution at that point. We'd already had two attempts to clear up Maidan by force. And then when they did that, people just kind of regrouped and they said, that's what we're fighting. We, we're, we're fighting to stop Ukraine from becoming a colony of Russia. Right. The coldest part was during the week of fighting on Khrushchevskova, the period of January the 16th, which was the passage of the dictatorship laws, through to January the 26th, which was when the fighting on was stopped, and Maidan was losing momentum. And when they passed that set of laws, which you know Professor Tim Snyder from, from Yale wrote at the time, Ukraine is on paper now a dictatorship, right? Again, that was another thing that just infused Infuriated us all, and it infuriated us to the 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 degree that the the next. Sunday the the 19th of January when people gathered on Maidan and the politicians were on stage saying that they've done this shows that they're desperate our tactics are working we must not change tactics this must be a peaceful revolution and the people in the square went nope and after the meeting broke up they went around the corner to rushshevsko where there was a, a, a roadblock that's the access to the, the government quarter yeah and it really went off there that was you know petrol bombs you know buses being set on fire clashes with the police it was it was it was a, a a street battle that lasted for an entire
4: week. Unarmed protesters, gunned down in the streets by the riot police, who were retreating from Kiev's Maidan Square. By the end of the day, more than 50 people were dead. The massacre would bring down Ukraine's pro-Moscow president. During that
3: period, the first three lives of the Revolution of Dignity were lost. Yuri Vabitsky, Mikhail Zhinevsky, and Selyoza. When you live in a deeply corrupt country and you've been protesting for two months, And then three people are killed because of their demands for a free Ukraine, for a democratic future for Ukraine. When three people are killed, what do you do? Do you look and you say... The cost has got too much, let's all go home. You say, you say no, no, we, we must continue and continue we did until, you know, the very bloody end.
4: Mr Yanukovych has until now always denied responsibility for the shooting of unarmed protesters, saying instead the whole event was staged by the opposition as part of a military coup. The night after the shootings, Mr. Yanukovych left Kiev. He would never return. Finally,
3: with Yanukovych fleeing on the on the twenty second of February, we woke up and it's like he's gone. It was elation, right? Yeah.
1: Well, first he took out like several planes of money out of the country and then was the last one to leave. Part of our team, including myself,
5: we left Ukraine to Czech Republic to continue our project on imposing personal sanctions on Yanukovych and his, his close associates. Wow. And this is what was our contribution to, to Maidan. Uh, we knew what is the weak point of Yanukovych. He, he bought all judiciary, all prosecution uh, in Ukraine. However, he relied a lot on Western banks, Western lawyers. Yeah. So what we did, we put together dossiers of all these enablers we highlighted the uh, western companies and western banks which were used by yanukovych and his associates to launder uh, literally dirty money and uh, we went protesting with ukrainian diaspora demanding personal sanctions asset freezes uh, against these groups
2: and you were tracking all of the assets of yanukovych and also all his associates yanukovych.info i think right daria
5: Yeah, we were tracking with focus on the role of Western
3: companies and Western lawyers. Back then, you know, and we're talking seven years ago, you were saying to people in the West, you have to follow your own anti-money laundering legislation. You know, you have guidelines, you have practices. And and this is so very relevant today. So you're like the trailblazer for something that has become very pressing and urgent now. And you were doing it then.
5: We continue doing that now. <laughs> so in Mezhegiria Palace, the palace of Yanukovych, the symbol of corruption, there was a Liechtenstein lawyer mentioned as a director of one of these companies. So we made the dossier of this, on this lawyer, his name was Reinhard Pausch. He doesn't like me, uh, <laughs> but he was placed as a director in many Western firms, which were engaged in Yanukovych schemes, in Azarov schemes, in Sergei Kluyev schemes. And we uh, told to European Union, to members of the European Parliament, listen, guys, we have people being murdered here, but you are accepting the money. And here is evidence that this money are ill-gotten, but you are violating your anti-money laundering rules by accepting this money. And one of very interesting cases which we have revealed was the role of Deutsche Bank. Mm. Deutsche Bank was 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 providing correspondent banking relationships, uh, correspondent banking services uh, to the bank of son of Viktor Yanukovych, to Alexander Yanukovych. So we arranged street protests in front of Deutsche Bank headquarters with support of Ukrainian diaspora in Germany, in New York and in in Ukraine. So in Ukraine, activists brought a demonstration of bloody money in front of Deutsche Bank in in Kiev. And then we went protesting in front of the European Union embassy and asked why dentist Yanukovych is, is a client of Deutsche Bank in Germany. Uh, demanding personal assets freeze and personal sanctions. So we had evidence which was delivered to the European parliament members, to media, and we were saying, listen, there is part of the problem also in on the West. You have to do something, and this something is actually simply follow your anti-money laundering rules.
3: Yeah. yeah. Following up from what Darius just said, number one, she just mentioned dentist Yanukovych. For people who don't know, that was the son of Yanukovych, uh, the President Yanukovych, um, who trained as a dentist and then became fabulously rich, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it was something like 1.2 billion dollars that he was that he was in that he was awarded in state contracts. Right? I mean, you know, trained as a dentist, 1.2 billion dollars in state contracts in the last three years of the of the Yanukovych well, you era.
2: Pulled a lot of teeth. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it, it's an awful lot of everything, right? And Deutsche Bank would be obviously uh, uh, Donald Trump's largest lender over the last decade or so. And we know what their um, uh, business practices are like. You know, there's, they, they, they were fined a huge amount of money for the mirror trades that they were doing uh, between their Moscow office um, and, uh, and, and offices in the United States, where somebody would essentially walk in with a, a large amount of money, you know, $40 million or something like that in Moscow. Mm. And then a mirror loan was then issued to somebody in the United States for the same amount of money. That was literally the money laundering that that Deutsche Bank were doing.
2: Everybody talks about Ukraine. Oh, it's so corrupt. It's so corrupt. Every country is. I mean, come on. (laughs) Exactly. It's an excuse that a lot of Western countries use to block Ukraine's entry into the EU and into NATO.
1: Why do you think there is such a pushback from Europe? particularly Germany and France, to block Ukraine from entering NATO?
3: On NATO, I, I think, number one, Ukraine, although there is a public majority in favor of NATO membership now, which there never was before. Thank you, Putin, for, for, for doing that. But um, NATO cannot, Ukraine is not ready, uh, is one issue. And NATO cannot accept a country that currently has a conflict ongoing, which is another reason why Russia will probably Keep the conflict ongoing for a while, but the, but the EU, I think, I think the EU is a is a, a much more positive story, and the EU in theory is is an open door for anyone who qualifies for membership, and and that's the more realistic one, and I I believe it will actually happen.
5: I also think that Ukraine will become the EU member state, and I believe that Ukraine also will become the NATO member state, and the reason for that is that uh, actually if you look into the reality, and we see who is defending Europe now, these are Ukrainian soldiers. We have the, one of the largest army and the well-prepared
0: and trained army which tested. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
5: Which knows how to fight. And uh, y- Europe and EU member states they have to realize that actually that the war which we are fighting... It's actually the war happening in Europe. And the reason why they are not fighting is just because it's Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, for the cost of their lives, um, are, are, are paying this price. Um, that, I think, uh, is our strength. Uh, I think it's also our strength that we are try- testing different responses to hybrid attacks. War is not just uh, conducted in military operations. War is also conducted with various hybrid attacks, and hybrid war against Europe is ongoing. And United States, uh, hybrid war against Western Europe is ongoing, and I think that many people in in in, in EU and in, in the US they are very naive and they were leaving the illusions. But here in Ukraine, we we don't have illusions. We understand uh, why certain narratives are being spread. We understand that it's a weapon. Uh, And soldiers which are fighting on the east, they also treat disinformation narratives from Russia as weapon. But Europe is not just Germany. Europe is not just the EU member states. That's, I think, uh, the issue, that the problem of Ukraine not uh, being in the EU in NATO is in Ukraine, but also on the West. And uh, we, we are honest in Ukraine. We are saying, well, security service of Ukraine is not ready to access NATO. We have to reform it. But what we are demanding NATO is actually let us focus on the roadmap of reforms Ukraine has to do in order to access NATO sooner or later. But let's agree on these reforms. Let's be very specific, as we did with, with the liberalization Action Plan. And we are now asking NATO, okay, you guys are saying that Ukraine lacks reforms. Let's have a list. What are these reforms? And let's have a goal that after we complete this list, you will open the door to us. And you will not say excuse to Ukraine that oh, Ukraine, you're not doing reforms, therefore you're in NATO. You will say, actually, honestly, that you don't want us to join NATO because you're afraid to fight, because you're afraid Russia, because you want to cooperate to have business with Russia. You don't want to irritate Putin. Then, you know, I think NATO and some EU member states and the West is being afraid of this truth, which they will have to say
1: that. For a while in Ukraine, there were pro-Russian oligarchs who, you know, owned a lot of the media and were successful in spreading Kremlin disinformation through Ukrainian households. Recently, you opened, which I hope the United States follows suit, Ukraine established a center for countering disinformation. Has the hold then with Medvedchuk being arrested, you know, his media outlets were taken out of possession, which is a good you know, amount of Russian disinformation cut off. How is all that working as far as countering the Russian disinformation?
5: I think the strength of Ukraine is that uh, we are relying not only on the state institutions, we are relying also on a lot of civil society uh, organizations and experts uh, which are uh, monitoring disinformation, but also designing possible strategies to respond it is very good, and I fully support the President Zelensky decision to impose sanctions on Viktor Medvedchuk and his proxies and to block his TV channels from uh, access uh, of broadcasting because these were just pure pro-Putin, pro-Kremlin propaganda machines. So I can't understand how the West can tolerate supporting business of Ukrainian oligarch which at the same time is attacking the West and America specifically. I can't understand that. And it's one of the reasons why we are deciding to monitor all these bullshit TV uh, uh, programs um, which are aired by Ukrainian TV channels. It is painful to watch, um, but I think this is something that Western investors who invest into the euro bonds of Ukrainian oligarchs have to be aware that they are
1: investing into anti-American, anti-Western, and pro-Russian propaganda. And at the same time, who is attacking America? Because, I mean, if you're selling that America is responsible for, you know, certain actions when America really has nothing to do with it, that's undermining America. Yep. And that's why I say Ukraine was a testing ground, because you see even with the media, how they gain control of the narrative and how forceful the narrative is. And now it's being it got exported basically, you know, over the past decade into U.S. And we have like half of the country who's like brainwashed, walking around, repeating absolute nonsense. Why is it so hard for Western media to properly describe Russia's attack? on Ukraine that they invaded and occupied.
3: Foolishly, journalists are still being tricked into thinking that they need to provide balance, right? And I, you know, you can't see it on the podcast, but I just did the hanging air quotes, balance, right? Ukraine is covered by and large by foreign correspondents who are sitting there in Moscow, right? The The, the issue is that propaganda is, it's everywhere. It's, it's pervasive. And people do not realize that they're being affected by it. And so you can have a really, really well-intentioned, good-meaning British or American journalist, and he's sitting there in Moscow, and he thinks that he's being fair and accurate and balanced. He's immersed in an environment where there is this propaganda that is around on all sides at all times and he's not immune to it and he's going to pick it up it's colleagues it's people in shops it's people on the metro it's you know it's it's the yeah, the the, yeah. the messages that they are exposed to during the advertising breaks between their favorite russian sitcom so ukraine is saying this russia says this and then leave the readers to draw their own conclusions but but why why would you do that? If you're a journalist and your job is to inform people. If you write the sentence Russia denies any involvement in the conflict of east in eastern Ukraine, you must finish it if you're a journalist with the words despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. Right? Yes.
3: Because because your job is to inform people. That that is what you do, right? But we know that Rostov on Don, it is the main staging base for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If somebody would to go to Rostov, and look at what's actually going on there. The city is very, very heavily militarized. There's always men that are walking around because they're on the, their rotation out of Ukraine, yeah. right? So they'll they'll serve inside of Ukraine for a month, and then they'll go and take their wages and get drunk in Rostov for a week. But they're still wearing their <laughs> fatigues. But what I would say, you know, to to these Moscow-based journalists, why have you not been to Rostov? Go to Rostov. Go and see them. Go and see all the equipment. Yeah, because it's all there and it's been there for the last seven years
1: last March at the height of the pandemic at COVID with people, you know, risking their lives with a few doctors falling out windows, trying to get videos out of dead bodies piling up in the hospital. You have a CNN reporter who's writing, oh, Putin is handling this pandemic so well. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, are you not watching the videos? I mean, it, it wasn't, you didn't even have to go to the outer regions to see this. This was happening in Moscow. There were 12 hour waits to get into a hospital. And here she is. Oh, why are the COVID numbers so low? They're so low because people are, you know, reporting uh, the the deaths as as pneumonia instead of COVID. I wanted to touch on a very important subject that we have seen in the news literally every week, cyber attacks. Around 2014, Ukraine started seeing daily cyber attacks. You had the power grid attack in the middle of winter where Ukrainians were left without heat. Russian hacking
3: to influence the American election has dominated the news, but we've also noticed a hacking attack that could be a future menace to America. Last weekend, Parts of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, went dark.
5: Nearly a quarter of a million people lost power in this small Ukrainian city when it was targeted by a suspected Russian attack last December. The suspected motive for the attack is the war in eastern Ukraine, where Russian-backed separatists are fighting against Ukrainian government forces.
1: But hackers could launch a similar attack in the U.S. You had an attack on the Election Commission system. You had the famous Petya attack that took even the Chernobyl Radiation Monitoring Center offline. The attempted and thwarted attack on the water supply a few years ago, which we actually saw in the United States happen twice this year. Is it fair to say Ukraine was a testing ground for these cyber attacks, that's
3: exactly what Russia has done. Yeah, U- Ukraine has been the testing ground for Russia's cyber war capabilities, um, and and then we see them trotting this out and using exactly the same tactics against infrastructure in in the United States of America. And there was there was the attack recently on your pipeline there in in Northeast America, mm-hmm. and it was reported then because. Russia's position is that this isn't the Russian state, this is private networks of et cetera, uh-huh. et cetera. You know, and people people are reporting that. I can see Daria laughing at this now, right? But, yeah. but people are reporting yeah. that like, okay, so that, that's credible. That's the explanation. It's just, you know, a group of private criminals. The intersection, the Venn diagram between criminal elements in Russia and the Kremlin is a circle it, it, it is a complete circle and it has been that way since the collapse of the Soviet Union
5: private entities which are doing cyber attacks from Russia do not exist they are entities either controlled by security service or set up by security service so therefore I was I was laughing <laughs> obviously if they' hybrid cyber attack is from Russia it's been a controlled Approved by Kremlin. If it is Russia, which is probably not, nobody knows who it is, but if it is Russia, it's really bad for a different reason.
3: The global problem from this is that Putin's Russia is a threat to everybody all the time. Russia is very active everywhere. It outsized in actual fact to their, their, their relative strength. Europe is reliant on hydrocarbons that, that come out of Russia, but equally true... Russia is not just reliant, dependent on the income that they get from selling those hydrocarbons, right? So it's not just, you know, Russia can blackmail us by turning off the gas, which obviously they want to do for, with, with Nord Stream 2, the point of, of them shipping gas directly to Germany is to use that for, for leverage, for, for pressure, should there be a future event that is in Russia's interest. But, but, but really, the way to look at it is, is Russia's dependent on the income?
1: Yes, absolutely. There is no separation between that. They use these criminals. They work hand in hand with intelligence and provide plausible deniability. The Trump administration has accused Russia of a series of cyber
2: attacks on American in European power plants water facilities and electrical grids. But an
5: attack in the U.S. could leave people without electricity for days or even weeks.
2: Officials say the intrusions began in 2015. The FBI and other agencies track the hackers and allege that Russian intelligence is responsible.
1: Meanwhile, they know if a protester is sitting in their house retweeting a Navalny tweet to show up at a protest, that FSB will knock down your door, but they can't track cyber criminals stealing <laughs> billions across. <laughs> Europe and United States, the rest there now are and it's for like insane things, things that you're doing in your house, sitting, like I said, retweeting something or maybe having a conversation about something. And next thing you know, oh, these people got arrested because they retweeted a Navalny tweet or showed some kind of support or you know, or they came out for a protest and it's regular people. It's not even the leaders. It's regular protesters.
3: The third leg of that is that what they're targeting you with, it's psychological manipulation. That's exactly what Cambridge Analytica was was designed for. It's, it's political psyop. So, so yeah, the, the, it has the ability to profile you and then to target you. But the stuff that they targeted you with, like targeting people's Fears and things maybe that they wouldn't say there in, in in public.
5: So actually, data psychological portraits of people based on social media. If this data is being then used for political messaging design and then for targeting these messages, and what Facebook showed and other social media showed that actually there is a way to find your client, find these people with these mm-hmm. fears. Yes. And then you're exactly sending messages to those uh, who want to get these messages. That's super dangerous. And this is technique which, you know, extremely um, dangerous for saving and safeguarding the entirety of democracy.
2: Yes. I mean, look, if we take a look at what happened with Brexit, that was certainly used there.
3: But the the, the thing that amazed me is that these people, these organizations, Vote Leave and Boris Johnson and, 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 and Trump, all these people who used Cambridge Analytica, they looked at it like... This is a tool that will help us get power. It will help us get the result that we want, right? Okay, fair enough. But not once, not once did anybody sit back and say, isn't that immoral?
2: Paul, you wrote a fantastic article about this. How truth is a fundamental part of democracy. Otherwise,
1: it doesn't work. That's why they tear down the truth.
3: You're exactly right. But it's not only just tearing down the truth, it's it, it's tearing down what are our basic democratic norms, right? One of the counter-arguments when people were saying this Brexit thing is wrong, right? Before it had actually happened, you know, I mean the vote has happened, the UK hasn't left the EU yet. And you know, and, and people are saying this is, you know, this is clearly going to be a disaster. There's not a single expert who says that this is going to come out well in any way, shape, or form. Right. <laughs> and and the and the counter-argument was it's democracy, it's democracy, it's democracy. And I, I said, hang on a second. If if you think that blatant lying is now okay in the political toolbox, if, if you think that psychological manipulation is now okay in the political toolbox. I, I'm you we have a different definition of what politics is and a and, and, and version what...
1: of democracy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
3: Democracy requires a basic set of norms and standards. And they and they've been trashed by the dishonesty of, you know, that period that that ushered in Brexit and, you know, led to and United States and led to and led to Trump,
2: which all started in Ukraine. Yep. What has been achieved up until now and what still has to be done?
3: You know, Donald Trump
5: made Ukraine look like the most corrupt country in the world. By design. But the only reason why there was so much focus on Ukraine is that actually we are exposing corruption and we are fighting corruption. And corrupt officials, oligarchs, and autocratic regimes backing them up are fighting back. So if we were not fighting corruption, if there was no success... I don't think that Ukraine would be in that, you know, top news. That also indicates how high are the costs of that fight. The problem is actually when we are close to success, then our brother nation, Russian Kremlin, are trying to destroy everything. Mm. And they are using strategic corruption. They are using their agents, which are being still placed into many Uh, security services uh, in Ukraine, even in the parliament of Ukraine. They're using judiciary system and judges which are open to corruption in order to bribe them, uh, in order to uh, influence them and get decisions which they need. Mm -hmm. And we worked hard for six years to build up, uh, you know, as a disclosure system for public officials, very effective system. And I recommend uh, every single Western country to have the same. Including the US and the EU member states. They have advocated successfully for the establishment of the independent investigative body, National Corruption Bureau, which investigates top corruption. And also, we have results. Uh, you know, NABU, this agency, is now following oligarchs and partnering with FBI. Corruption is not just a problem of poor countries right. or source countries of corruption. Corruption is also a problem for rich countries uh, which accept dirty money. This dirty money, they destroy, they poison. And we, we happened to advocate for the establishment behind the corruption court, mm-hmm. uh, where judges were interviewed by ex- external experts, by former uh, British judges. Uh, and they actually banned bad candidates from accessing this court. And many other things, like everyone is talking about the need to disclose beneficial owners of companies, uh, specifically in the U.S., right? Finally, it's happening, but it's still not public. But in Ukraine, we've got long that back in 2015. So a lot was done. And there are results transparency tools of public procurement, uh, Prozora system, which we have in Ukraine, helps to identify and expose corruption. So it basically means that we know now more information about corruption. If you compare it with Russia or with Belarus, it's much harder to expose corruption there. You don't have tools. And if you are doing that, you can be tortured, kidnapped, poisoned. This is Russia and this is Belarus. Yeah. But in Ukraine, you, you can do that. And it gives perception that Ukraine is very corrupt, even to u- Ukrainian people. But it, it doesn't mean that we are getting more and more corrupt. Comparing to what was under Yanukovych, I'm pretty sure we, we are much less corrupt. Yeah. Um, so we have success stories and results, and therefore all groups, including um, Framling, uh, are trying to destroy these results. And we have good news. The Parliament of Ukraine supported historic laws in Ukraine, which I believe will help to clean up entire judiciary uh, in Ukraine. But still it's um it's it will be a long fight
3: rather than Ukraine being synonymous with corruption Ukraine should be synonymous with finding ways of fighting corruption because that is what we have been doing for the last seven years that was the demand of Maidan and we keep doing it and it's you know in some ways it's baby steps right but but when we talk about the public procurement tool Prozora which which Daria mentioned you know that's saving Ukrainian taxpayers more than a billion US dollars per year, because there's not the kind of contracts that went to the dentist Yanukovych that we mentioned earlier on, right? That sort of stuff doesn't happen anymore. And it's now a transparent system and everybody benefits from this. But we should be shifting the narrative because what we're actually doing here is we are basically creating a template of anti-corruption tools that are going to need to be used in the wider region when the revolution in Belarus is successful, when the revolution in Russia is successful. And both things, I believe, are both imminent in actual fact. There's a reckoning that's coming with Lukashenko. There's a reckoning that's coming with, with Putin as well. What we're doing here is we're laying down a blueprint for how these other countries are going to fight themselves out of those same problematic situations as well. And, and I think it's something, as you know especially, the work that, that, that Daria is doing. I think it's something that we, as as the Ukrainian nation, we can be very, very proud
1: of.
5: We are not just a laboratory for evil. We are also a laboratory for solutions and for good things. Yeah,
1: and that template can be provided to some some countries in the West too. Yeah. yeah
2: we can't thank you enough the both of you
1: thank you my absolute pleasure thank you so much
2: hey everybody if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website kremlinfile.com and find our links to our socials in the show notes this is season one kremlin file hosted by Olga Lautman and me Monique Mara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordy Mycellus of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Everyone's sitting here going, now, how'd you follow that? We're listening all that. <laughs> I'm like,
1: wait, am
2: I on mute? <laughs>